From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, I'm Emilio San Pedro, and this is the Eurovision News Podcast. In this episode, we explore the topic of mental health in journalism with Bruce Shapiro. Shapiro is the executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University in New York. He's an expert on how journalists can cope with the emotional and psychological impacts of covering violence, conflict, and tragedy. He also advises newsrooms on how to report on mental health issues in a responsible and ethical way. Shapiro shares his insights on the challenges and opportunities that journalists face in times of crisis. We're hoping this will inspire and empower journalists, editors, and heads of news who want to improve their mental health and advance strategies related to the craft of reporting on violence and tragedy. Bruce, first of all, thank you very much for joining us on the Eurovision News Podcast. I'm so glad to be here, Emilio. Great. Well, we're very happy uh, to have you. First of all, tell us a bit about yourself, your work at the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, and what drew you to this type of work? Well, all I really am is is an old reporter and editor. That's that's what I really know how to do. I spent um, many years as a local reporter covering everything from bridge collapses and fires to politics, spent almost 20 years as a national reporter in the U.S. covering uh, human rights investigative reporting, things like that. So I've always spent a lot of time interested in the intersection of uh, psychology and the work we do as journalists. But in the mid-90s, I was covering criminal justice in the U.S., issues like prisons, the death penalty, police violence, and found that our own toolkit as journalists really was lacking in what we need to know when reporting on the worst experiences that people go through. You know, so much of what counts as news involves violence and tragedy, and yet while we wouldn't send a reporter to cover a football game who doesn't know the rules, doesn't know what a goal is, we routinely send reporters to knock on the doors of bereaved families or into conflict zones without really understanding the psychology of it all. So I got interested first as a kind of a craft matter. What do we need to know as reporters? Um, But in talking to a handful of other people around the U.S. and indeed in, in Europe who are beginning to ask the same questions, some as journalists, some as psychiatrists and psychologists, some as researchers and teachers, it became clear that there was another side as well, which is what is the impact of a steady diet of um, immersion in trauma on news professionals? How do the stories we cover, the assignments we take on affect us? Turned out that in the history of journalism and in the history of psychology, no one had bothered to ask. So in the, in the late 90s, several of us convened and were funded by a family foundation in Michigan, the, the DART Foundation, which continues to support this work to today, to begin doing some of that research, to begin doing some of that training in newsrooms, to begin drawing out both from trauma experts and from our own profession of journalists, some guidelines, some wisdom, some knowledge and expertise. 
And that word trauma is very charged and it, it can mean many different things. What does it mean in the context that we're talking about, in the context of journalists covering uh very difficult stories. Yeah, that's a really important question, especially because nowadays trauma is used very casually and loosely for everything from, you know, from I lost my wallet to war, right? Um, when I use the word and when my colleagues who are clinicians and researchers uh, who I'm privileged to work with at the DART Center, when we use the word, what we really mean is is psychological injury, is events coming from the outside, experiences coming from the outside that overwhelm the capacity of an individual or family or community to cope, to recover. You know, there's trauma and then there's post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a very specific clinical diagnosis. But the, the baseline idea is Trauma is the enduring change, often negative, in the wake of overwhelming violence or threat or crisis, or violence or threat or crisis that are unmitigated and ongoing for a long time. Trauma is not a fate, it's not a doom, but it's a reality of the world that we have to contend with. And it exists alongside another idea that I'll probably talk about a bit, which is equally important, and that's resilience. As human beings, we are all born with a natural capacity to recover from very challenging events. Research in journalists shows that we are, in fact, a pretty resilient tribe. Uh, our work helps us uh, cope with difficult events. And the the ability to be overwhelmed by trauma and the ability to cultivate resilience are both central ideas for the journalism community that we really need to grapple with right now. Now, all of us uh, who have worked in the field in journalism covering difficult stories, in my case, in the early 2000s, I, I spent a lot of time uh, covering the drug cartels in Mexico, and I had to travel uh, a few times uh to very sensitive areas uh, mm. that were, uh, you know, you prepare yourself no matter how you did. It was still very difficult. But some journalists uh, that I've worked with at the BBC, for example, really thrive on that. They they love, uh, um, they seem to jump from one conflict uh, to another. They're quite happy to embrace it. Mm -hmm. uh, how does that happen? Well, I think there's a few ways of thinking about that. First of all, some people are, for reasons of genetics, for reasons of biography, and also sometimes because of skills people have built up, people are simply, some people are really well wired to deal with high levels of stress and threat. Most of the war reporters I know, most of the career conflict correspondents and crisis reporters are not deeply damaged, wounded head cases in, in, in the kind of movie mode. Most of the crisis correspondents I know are people with deep dedication to human rights, with a deep sense of mission and purpose. Um, and they're also people who can handle extraordinary stress quite well. Um, and there are just huge differences in the 
the psychological makeup that as journalists we bring to this field. At the same time, it's important to recognize that a steady load of danger and threat or singular overwhelming experiences can overtop the capacity of even the most experienced war reporter or crisis reporter and can lead people who've always been good at their job to suddenly find that the cumulative load or a singular horrific experience, a kidnapping, a bombing, being imprisoned and tortured, um, leads to post-traumatic stress disorder or other really disabling stress. So, you know, I think there's not a black and white, this person is a conflict reporter, this person is not, this person is resilient, this person is not. We all bring different elements to the equation. You know, the, the baseline job of journalism includes what research is showing, some important protective factors having a job to do in the face of mayhem and chaos, having a clear sense of mission and purpose, having a sense of ethics, and most of all, having trusted colleagues. All of these are buffers and protective factors. But at the same time, the basic mechanisms of trauma, the way that overwhelming threat and violence and stress can act on the brain can undermine some very basic mechanisms that we rely on in journalism every day. So if you, you know, go down the list of symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, you'll find the mechanisms that are crucial to being a successful journalist, you know, the accuracy and controllability of memory, the ability to focus, concentrate, put together complex information in meaningful ways, build trusting relationships with colleagues, with sources, with news consumers. All those can be deeply undermined by trauma. And so when an otherwise resilient journalist's personal levy is overtopped, it can be singularly disabling. And what responsibility lies on on management and, and senior editors who are working with these journalists to get them out into the field? What are the things they need to look out for? When do they need to know to help this person draw the line, as it were? Well, let me say first that in discussing the responsibilities, the duty of care of news organizations, it's crucial to understand that it's not just conflict reporters or crisis reporters who contend with these issues. In fact, research all over the world uh, for now 20 years has clearly shown that local journalists who cover car crashes, who cover murders and murder trials, local journalists in crisis areas like Mexico or Ukraine who are subjected to constant threat and stress or who are covering local conflicts in their own communities, investigative reporters dealing with high levels of threat, people on picture desks and social media desks dealing with high levels of graphic imagery. All of these are uh, folks who have some occupational health risk, who are dealing with significant trauma exposure. So the, the duty of care isn't just about the war correspondent. It's about the full spectrum of everyone from the local reporter to the national and international globe trotting 
journalists. I believe that our profession has a significant duty of care, which extends to several levels. You know, when the DART Center started its work in 1999, there was very little knowledge, very little research to back up the sense that we ought to be doing a better job as a profession. And so the old culture of stigma, and if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, all that was thriving at that time. That's no longer the case now. There is now a substantial body of research all over the world across lines of language and culture showing the occupational trauma risk to news professionals at every level of the profession. And that creates for us a duty of care. It starts, I think, at the very top level, at the executive level, where it's the responsibility of news organizations to understand and embrace this duty of care and create policies that don't punish journalists who seek help or who get help, policies which train managers in the skills of handling trauma exposure on their teams, which allow for the pacing of assignments, which include the proper resourcing of um, uh, of, of of clinicians, uh, well-trained, trauma-trained psychotherapists who are available to trauma-impacted news professionals. That's a big investment. Um, there also is a lot that news organizations can do to train their reporters, both frontline and at the desk, to train their editors, to train their photographers and producers in self-care and also in how to be a good colleague. One of the striking things from the research into journalists all over the world is that the single most important uh, factor associated with journalists' resilience in the face of trauma, coping well with heavy assignments, is trusting collegial support. And the single most important risk factor for occupational PTSD, for burnout and other things, is social isolation. So this means we need to be thinking not just about, well, is there, are there shrinks who are available for referral and are we sending nice, good, caring messages when journalists are covering a mass shooting or terrorist bombing or something, but are we helping people learn how to be good colleagues to one another? A few news organizations around the world have actually instituted formal journalist-to-journalist peer support programs. The Australian Broadcasting Corporation is a pioneer in this. Reuters, some others, have created programs where in every office and bureau, there are one or two journalists who are the sort of super colleagues who are known to be the peer resources. That, too, takes investments by big news organizations. So there's, a, I think, multiple layers of responsibility. There's the responsibility to train staff in basic self-care, which really does make a difference, the responsibility to train managers, the responsibility to create an environment of collegial support, of peer support. There's the institutional investment in that. And there's also the destigmatizing, the important messages that say this is a psychologically sustainable work environment is a key performance indicator for our news organization. Okay. 
And I should also say that on the other side of that, for news organizations which choose to ignore now 20 years of research into the occupational health and safety risks of trauma exposure to journalists, there are potential negative consequences. Two years ago in Australia, uh, the victorious Supreme Court found for a journalist against one of the most important news organizations in Australia, The Age, found that its managers had ignored substantial evidence that this reporter was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, and they were held liable in a judgment for the psychological injury that she sustained. So, you know, most news executives are beginning to get it, and there is a generational shift happening, I think. It's also important to recognize that there are liabilities, perhaps, down the line for news organizations that ignore the safety risk to their journalists. Now, we've talked about uh, mainly the classic, if you will, exposure to trauma. This is a journalist out in the field, whether it's locally, internationally, on a conflict zone, covering, as you say, a robbery or a murder for local news, being exposed to trauma there on the spot. But in newsrooms like ours here at Eurovision News, we're not out covering stories. My uh, team is here uh, taking in a great deal of material, very difficult material. Sometimes eyewitness content that's very raw. Sometimes uh, content from conflict zones like right now from Ukraine on a daily basis. So it's a lot more than just the people out in the field. Indeed. Indeed. Um, and, and this is the part that the public never sees. You know, the public does see the face of the courageous war correspondent, the face of the local reporter covering um, a flood or a mass shooting or dis- or, or you know, the Grenfell Towers catastrophe, right? W- you know, the public sees that face. But behind that are the editors and producers and photographers and photo editors, right? And there's really two different ways that the folks on the desk can be profoundly affected by trauma. And again, there's research all over the world um, showing this. First of all, so many people who never leave the desk are spending a lot of time in constant empathetic engagement through interviews and other kinds of contact with profoundly vulnerable and traumatized people. And you know, as journalists, we carry those interviews, those stories, those experiences on our own, in our own memories and on our own soul. And there is a lifetime accumulation of that. Just as important, so many journals, in fact, more than ever, are dealing, uh, whether they're on picture desks, social media desks, verifying user-generated content, are dealing now with a steady diet of graphic imagery, a massive pipeline of often very gruesome video, some of which the public will see, some of which the public will never see. Um, we need to look at it, verify it, edit it, etc. 20 years of research, not only into journalists, but into other professions like police investigators, human rights investigators, etc., shows quite conclusively that a steady professional diet of graphic imagery can lead to the same traumatic stress responses as directly witnessing events. Now, I'm not talking about a a one-off look at an upsetting video, 
but day after day, hour after hour, consuming deeply distressing graphic video gets processed in the brain in the threat center, right? In the danger center, especially if people are really tired, really exhausted, already dealing with trauma, whatever. There's lots of different reasons. And a steady diet of graphic imagery can be a pathway to exactly the same psychological injuries, PTSD, et cetera, as direct trauma exposure. We know this from journalism. We know this from many other professions. It's a connection so profound that the latest definition of post-traumatic stress disorder in the American Psychiatric Association's uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual specifically includes professional exposure to graphic imagery as one of the pathways for PTSD. Now, again, very important to say, that doesn't mean it's a doom, it's a fate, right? Working on a picture desk is not a one-way ticket to PTSD. But it does mean that, A, journalists who work on those desks need strategies and skills for managing the graphic imagery load and for taking care of themselves. And it also means that news organizations have as profound a duty of care to folks on visual desks as they do to people in the field. And what are some of those strategies, Bruce? Some of them are very practical uh, about you know, pacing the load of imagery. Everybody needs neurological downtime. And if you're responsible for, you know, verifying video from Ukraine, for instance, it's important to come up with a strategy for pacing that, you know, spend half an hour on and then spend 15 minutes off, things like that. Some of it involves teams deciding to tag video as it comes in as distressing so that, People don't need to be surprised more than once by it. Some of it involves developing strategies for looking only at what you need to look at or even developing technological solutions. You know, th there's a lot of training and also innovation that teams themselves need to come up with. A big part of it also involves self-care strategies, people understanding their own responses. If particular videos of, let's say, Mr. George Floyd's murder keep repeating on you, what are things you can do to get that image out of your head? And when when is it actually interfering with your work? When do you need to get help? Again, it's a combination of team commitments, news organization commitments, and also an individual commitment to self-care. They, they, they all matter. So it's, it's really a joint effort, isn't it? It's everyone working together. It, re it really is. It really is. And the news organizations that I know that have dealt most successfully with the challenge of what is sometimes called vicarious or secondary trauma are those that have made a commitment at three levels, where there's executive commitment um, to says we take this seriously, where managers and newsroom leaders are alert and well-trained, and also, and this is very important, where at the newsroom floor level, at the desk, um, People are taking the initiative and often pressing their managers and pressing the bosses to take the issue more seriously and are doing a job of looking out for themselves and their colleagues. You know, I will say on this, there is both some new risk and some new promise out there in the world, and they're related. You know, the new risk 
is that as graphic imagery on social media and also threats to journalists on social media have proliferated, newsrooms have you know had to hire people to deal with that and very often they're the youngest people they're folks just out of university maybe not even with a background in journalism maybe with a background in technology and those folks are being washed over and sometimes overwhelmed facebook's content moderators sued facebook in california a couple of years ago and won their lawsuit for that reason right the promise i think is that I do find when I'm in newsrooms, either in person or via Zoom now, there's a generation of younger news professionals, folks in their 20s, who are coming into journalism with a substantial language around trauma. It's in the air they breathe, the water that they drink in university and in the society as a whole. And that generation, they have a higher expectation of duty of care. And in a number of countries around the world, they're really pushing newsroom leaders and pushing media owners to take these issues more seriously, both about vicarious and secondary trauma and direct trauma exposure in the field. So we've been talking about direct exposure, vicarious exposure to trauma by journalists doing their job. But there's also the other side of this, isn't there, which is journalists covering uh, stories and how we approach the stories we cover. I'll give you one example. Uh, in 2021, when uh, the Taliban took over Kabul, we immediately signed a, a deal with a news channel there to be able to get material from them. And very soon thereafter, we realized that they were going to great uh, lengths to get us this material. As soon as we noticed, we had to kind of take the decision to start explaining to them, we don't want you going out and filming this content. Uh, what is the responsibility on that side of it? Because there's that hunger for news that we have on the news desk that we want more material. Uh, it's not only about us being exposed to trauma, is it? No. In fact, to the contrary. I mean, for many journalists who are mission-driven and don't want to really be thinking about themselves as the center of attention, the question of the, what's our duty of care to our sources and the people we cover is the compelling issue of the time, Right. And I think there's several layers on which this is a baseline challenge. I teach ethics at Columbia, and my master's journalism students, all of whom are out there reporting, are encountering these questions constantly and bringing them back and saying, what do we do, right? On the one hand, there is, as you said, that basic commitment to the safety of sources. There's also, though, the big questions involving how do we even interview people about trauma, about profoundly distressing events. A lot of younger journalists, I find, are, are quite worried about re-traumatizing people who have been tortured or have been subjected to sexual assault or have survived war. And there, actually, I think it's important to say that what research shows, which is that being interviewed about trauma can be a challenging, a distressing event, but it also can be really valuable. So long as, as journalists, we are making sure that we're not being manipulative or coercive, that we're keeping our promises, that we're knowledgeable enough about how trauma plays out in people's lives so that if we're getting 
the thousand yard stare, or if someone is very scattered in how they're telling a story, we understand that that's part of the biopsychosocial reality of trauma. We know how to approach them and interpret it and keep them psychologically safe. So I, you know, I think both dimensions, the physical safety of our sources in situations in which they may be under profound threat, but also the day-to-day psychological safety of sources, which comes up in the most democratic, safe societies in the world, right? When you're interviewing victims of crime or forced migrants and refugees or anyone else who's been through severe trauma, that question of what are the responsible ways of reporting on them is really important. And there, we're lucky, right? There, First of all, we do have now substantial evidence from trauma science about how people are affected, and we can incorporate that into our toolkits. And we also have now a generation of reporters who, for 20 plus years, have been learning from one another, covering issues like the global Me Too movement, covering issues like forced migration and refugees, covering the long aftermath, the long tail of war, reporters are actually very generous at sharing their, here's how I got the story strategies, and learning what's been effective at uh, working with profoundly vulnerable people. It sounds like you feel like, perhaps despite all the difficulties and truly horrible stories that are still out there that need to be covered and very challenging uh, news events that you at some level feel like we're in a better place in dealing with this? Oh, for sure. When I started looking at these questions in the 90s and when my colleagues and I started the Dart Center for Journalism and Trauma in 1999, in most newsrooms of the world, if you raise the questions of duty of care toward journalists, you'd be thrown out on your ass. Um, In most newsrooms in the world, um, if you said, you know, we need to think about how to interview victims, it was like, well, you got to get the quote, get the story. Uh, uh, That's all, that's all, that's all, that's all, that's all. Um, There's been a profound and ongoing conversation in our profession. And there also has been really world-changing research that has created a lot of innovation. Now, there are a lot of countervailing pressures. This is a terrible time economically in the the news industry. It's a terrible time for attacks on journalists from authoritarians and from uh, the kind of online mob. There's a lot of risk out there and a lot of violence in the world. But there's no doubt in my mind that as a profession, we're beginning to have the conversations we need to have. We have a toolkit we didn't have 20 years ago. And there are innovative ways of meeting these challenges that are having a significant impact on journalists and on news consumers and on the communities and individuals and families whose difficult stories we have a responsibility to tell. Bruce Shapiro, Executive Director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University in New York. Thanks very much. Uh, for talking to us. Thank you, Emilio. Great conversation. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and telling a friend about us.
This is Laurent Fratt, producer of the podcast. The music was created by Mickey Curling, and Martin Lonesser took care of the sound. Thank you from all of us.